Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday. Welcome to Fair Voice. I'm your host, Hannah Suriak. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. There are a couple announcements really fast. Just letting you know, podcast might be down for a couple of days. That's just due to some technical difficulties. Don't worry, it'll be sorted out. And I hope you can hear this one because it's going to be fantastic. The second announcement is I apologize about the audio. The audio will not be as pristine as usual. Uh, I tried my best to edit out the static, but I can only do so much. So please bear with me on that. I promise you we'll be back up and running next week. It'll be fantastic. I am so excited. Coming up on the podcast, we have Valerie Hudson. We have Don Bradley. We're going to have a really great time this semester. I have some other excellent guests for you to listen to. We're going to have some excellent conversations. We're going to learn more about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, and it'll be fantastic. I'm so excited. As usual, if you have any questions, please email me at h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. Your question will be featured on the podcast. If you ask it and you tell me that that's what you want, sometimes you ask me questions just for fun. You can also do that, too. I will answer you in a timely-ish manner. I'm sorry I'm busy, Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't love you. I still love you. Uh, Shoot me an email if I forget to respond. Life happens. You know. You all get it. So let's get started today with today's question. So today's question, this is very fun. I was talking to a professor who listens to the podcast and he really wanted this question to be answered on the podcast. So I was like, okay, sure. We'll put, we'll just push it right in front. Uh, He's a longtime listener of the podcast. So I figured might as well. And he also asked it around the same time that I started doing this whole question and answer segment. So it it seems fairly chronological to me. So here's what today's question is going to be. So it's a very interesting question. It's a two-part question. The question was, Hannah, what are your, who are your favorite Latter-day Saint figures in history? And then who are your favorite Latter-day Saint scholars? I could answer this question in a 10-minute dialogue. And in fact, I did. And then I decided to re-record it so that way you could get the condensed version. So my favorite figures in Latter-day Saint history, I, when people ask me this question, I always want to say Jesus because Jesus is ultimately my favorite person. Um, so we're going to start off with Jesus. He's my favorite person. I also really admire Joseph Smith. Um, I admire Joseph Smith on a personal level in terms of his character and the way that he was able to deal with adversity. I like his self-reflection, his introspection, and I think he had some of the most brilliant theology that we could possibly ever get our hands on. So I have the yeah, utmost admiration for Joseph Smith. Other Latter-day Saints who have inspired me, uh, Hugh Nibley, he also applies to the second one, but I feel like we should also put him in the first one. So Hugh Nibley. Um, I also really like Jane Elizabeth Manning James. She is absolutely wonderful. I also love Sousa Young Gates, amazing person. Really, the whole Brigham Young clan is awesome. There's a lot of amazing women who did a lot of amazing things who are in the Brigham Young family. In terms of other prophets and apostles who I admire, uh, I have a lot of favorites, which makes this hard. Ironically, Wilford Woodruff is one of them, and that's who we're talking about on the podcast today, so that works out super well. I also really like Gordon Gordon B. Hinckley. I like Thomas S. Monson. Uh, Those voices are, they resonate with me just very deeply and on a personal level. Then for other apostles, I really like Parley P. Pratt. Orson Pratt, uh, Thomas Marsh is one of my favorites as well. Orson Hyde, I think is absolutely excellent. Um, George Cucannon is one of my favorites. Um, and I just think he's absolutely an absolutely fascinating individual. And I just have a lot of admiration for him as a person as well. And then I also happen to really resonate with you know, Elder Holland, Elder Uchtdorf, um, in, in terms of prophets and apostles today, and President Oaks, as well as President Nelson. That's my answer to the first question. My answer to the second question, in terms of who are my favorite Latter-day Saint scholars, obviously, Hugh Nibley is one of my favorites. I love pretty much everything that he's ever written. I really like his stuff on the Book of Abraham. Um, I'm going to include Joseph Smith again here, because might as well. Um, I think that that's fine. I will also say that I like John Swanson a lot. I admire his work. President Oaks also gets to double up here. Um, I like John Welsh, Daniel C. Peterson, John Gee is also a favorite of mine, David Paulson, uh, Blake Oxler, 
James E. Falconer. I also admire Lincoln Blumelt. I also admire uh, Brad Farnsworth, Tyler Griffin, Jared Ludlow, Carrie Mulestein, Hank Smith, Anthony Sweat, Charles Swift, Brent Top, Brad Wilcox, and last but not least, Mark Allen Wright. I like all of these people. In terms of my favorite articles from Latter-day Saint Scholars, I thought I would just do a bonus because I do have favorite articles. I'll give you my top three. In particular order, we have Ancient Voyages Across the Ocean to America from Impossible to Certain by John Swanson. Next up, we have An Egyptian Context for the Sacrifice of Abraham by John D. and Carrie Milstein. And then up next, we have Et Incarnatus Est, The Imperative for Book of Mormon Historicity by Stephen Smoot. In terms of other areas of scholarship, there are a lot of great New Testament scholars and there are a lot of great Hebrew Bible scholars that I really admire. Um, these pieces stood up to me the most. Um, I have nothing but good things to say about a lot of Latter-day Saint scholars, and I am grateful for that. So th those are my takes, and I hope that you enjoyed them. I hope that you find them interesting. I encourage you to read some articles today, to read some biographies of your favorite Latter-day Saint figures. It has changed my life to do that. Studying the life of Joseph Smith has been something that has truly blessed me in a lot of different ways. But without further ado, let's talk about Wilford Woodruff today. And today I have on Steve Harper and Jennifer McClay of the Wilford Woodruff Papers. And you can find them. Uh, please check the link in the description. We also talk about this at the end. But I would love for you to click that link. I'd love for you to see if you would like to volunteer, see if you would like to donate. There are a lot of different ways that you can help them out. And I am so glad to have them on today. And without further ado, we're going to start. Let's start off by talking about who was Wilford Woodruff. Well, I'm nervous because the world expert on Wilford Woodruff is listening in. <laughs> uh, Wilford Woodruff would have thought of himself as nobody special. He would have thought of himself as unusually inclined to accidents and dangers and life-threatening uh, experiences, and he would have um, thought of himself as somebody that you could rely on, somebody you could send to the ends of the earth with the most difficult job and count on it being done. So he was born in March 1807, and within uh, two years, his mother had passed away. He was raised by a his father and a stepmother, uh, a couple of brothers. Any sisters, Jennifer? He did have one, Eunice. One sister, Eunice, that's right. And uh, went to school, actually. Um, grew up in Connecticut. Uh, grew up among devout Christians, uh, mostly congregationalists, but with a fair Baptist presence and um, intense Christianity. And um, Wilford was a Christian and a believer. In fact, maybe more so, maybe more intensely so than any of his family members, relatives. He was shaped very much by a prophecy by a fellow named Robert Mason. Correct anything I get wrong, Jennifer. Robert Mason, who, who told Wilford that he had seen a day when the gospel fullness would be available and that he would not live to see it. That is, Robert Mason would not live to see it, but Wilford would. And he, he counted on that. Wilford counted on that. He moved to New York, um, up central upstate New York, where he worked. He grew up working as a miller. His father built and ran mills, and Wilfred did that kind of work. And um, it was there in New York that he first met a couple of missionaries preaching the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the Everlasting Covenant. And he and his brother both listened and were attentive to that and um, ended up embracing the gospel, uh, Wilfred did. Uh, not long after that, Wilford was recruited to join the camp of Israel. Lord had called for an army of men to march to Missouri 
to provide relief and supplies and potentially even defense for the saints who had been exiled from Jackson County from the promised land. And they were told to go willing to lay down their lives. And as far as they knew, they might very well have to do that. So that was a trip that in, in hindsight looks to us uh, like no big deal or maybe even a failure, but uh, at the time looked like uh, an Abrahamic kind of sacrifice, a willingness to give your life and your, for the cause of Zion. And Wilfred walked every step of the way with that in mind, completely willing to do so. And he remained that way throughout his whole life. Uh, after the Camp of Israel march, he didn't come back to New York or Ohio, where the church was headquartered. He went on a mission south and spent uh, much of the next uh, couple of years in Kentucky and Tennessee, where he contributed to the growth of the church and the strength of the church there, and then made his way back to Kirtland, Ohio. He was too late to be there for the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, but he arrived um, the next year and participated in the same ordinances as uh, they had uh, in the January through April 1836 when the temple was dedicated. He, he received a washing and anointing ordinance, wash a foot washing, and he was privy to uh, the stole of spiritual gifts and testimony meetings that were a spiritual highlight of his life. He again was in close proximity of Joseph Smith, the prophet, and hung on his every word, knew him and, and got to know him better and better. So Wilfred is among the many people who knew Joseph well and believed him most. It's an important point to remember that the people who knew Joseph Smith best believed him most, and Wilfred became one of that number. He um, got married. He met and uh, fell for Phoebe Woodruff. Phoebe Whitmore Carter was her name. Uh, they got married in 1837, I think. Am I right about that, Jennifer? 1837. And then not long after that, they were out off again on missions. This time, Wilford goes to the East Coast uh, to his own relatives and also to Phoebe's relatives. And Phoebe will join him at different um, times on this mission. She'll go to visit her own family. And often they'll intersect. She and Wilford will meet up in Scarborough, Maine, where Phoebe's uh, family lives. Wilfred will end up on some islands off the coast of Maine, where he and his companions will open missionary work on the islands of the sea. He had received a blessing and a call to the 70 that um, made him feel like he had an obligation to take the gospel to the islands of the sea. And he literally did that, had great success, and um, will later lead the converts from that mission, along with he and Phoebe, to Zion. That is, they're going to take a wagon train and go to Missouri. Before they get there, though, they hear word that the saints have been driven by the governor's executive order from the state of Missouri. Now, uh, I skipped over a minor detail. When he's on his mission off the coast of Maine, he receives a letter from the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Thomas Marsh. And in this letter, President Marsh says, Wilfred, you have been called to fill a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And I don't think he saw that coming. Uh, so he accepted that call. It'll be a while before he could get back uh, to where he could be ordained. Um, and when he is ordained, will finally be ordained an apostle while he's sitting on a cornerstone for the far west temple. Um, Joseph Smith is in jail in Liberty, Missouri at the time, and Brigham Young is leading the apostles, and they are fulfilling the revelation that calls them to leave from that spot, the far west temple site, for a mission to England. And Wilford's going to join that mission, and he's going to be ordained uh, on that spot. From there, they go uh, east across the Mississippi River and try to recover economically and then 
try to recover from malaria before they leave on their mission. But from there, he takes the first of, uh, of um, multiple missions to England, and he becomes a fantastically successful missionary there. I don't know if anybody's ever enjoyed the kind of success that Wilfred did in England. He's the main missionary uh, that contributes to the success, to the, to the conversion of hundreds of members of a um, kind of reformed uh, church that's looking for the re restoration of the gospel, this group that's ready for what Wilfred preaches. And uh, it's the United Brethren. They join the church in mass and uh, uh, many of them gather then to Nauvoo and uh, build the church. Uh, how far do you want to go, Hannah? Is this okay or too much detail or too little? Or? This was perfect. Um, one thing that I would love for Jennifer to talk a little bit more about is how Wilfred learned about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Cool. Great idea. Actually, this is one of my favorite stories um, because it is such a personal one. Um, so when Wilford was searching for what he considered would have to be the church that Christ established, one of the most significant things to him was that, that miracles, that gifts of the spirit would follow the believers. And according to the, the churches that he knew, that had ended. So one of the things that he had sought was to follow Christ's example, although he'd been baptized as a baby, um, he felt the need to be baptized by immersion and went to, uh, wrote to a local minister and said, will you perform this ordinance for me? And the minister, assuming that Wilford was becoming a member of his congregation, said, you know, that's fantastic. And Wilford said, no, I just want the ordinance. Um, I don't think your church is correct, but I need to follow the example of, of Christ. So when he heard the gospel taught by Zara Pulsifer and Elijah Cheney, he recognized not only what he'd been looking for, but that they had the authority to perform the ordinance in the correct way, that there was more to it than just the action. So the story of Zara Pulsifer and Elijah Cheney is fascinating to me because according to the Pulsifer family, Zara was out threshing his barn and felt impressed to leave home immediately and, and serve a mission. And he went into his wife and uh, asked or explained to her what he felt impressed to do. And she basically said, can I get you a pair of socks and maybe a clean shirt? So he left. He went by his neighbor's house a few miles away, Elijah Cheney, and they both headed north. And they basically walked for 60 miles before they stopped. And the house that they stopped at was the home of Wil where Wilford lived with his brother, Asmund, and Asmund's wife, Elizabeth. They weren't there. They were out working. And Elizabeth said they would, they would love to hear what these gentlemen had to say because she knew that they'd been seeking the truth. So that night, um, they held a meeting at the schoolhouse. So when Wilford got back, to his home and Elizabeth said that's what was going on. He went directly to the schoolhouse and he arrived in time to hear Zara's opening prayer. And um, he basically uh, knelt down and asked the Lord for what he wanted is how Wilfred put it. And the way that he prayed was unusual um, in Wilfred's experience. So after singing, Zara then preached for an hour, and Wilford's impression of what he said was that he had learned more about the gospel in that time than he had in all that he'd studied. And he felt the witness from the Spirit of God during that meeting. So he stood up at the end of the meeting and expressed his conviction about what the, the elders had had said. He asked for the Book of Mormon, um, and he said he believed it was light and truth. So he read it, um, and the next morning, 
asked if he could be baptized, which he was on December 31st of 1833 in um, upstate New York, meaning they had to break the ice to get into the Grindstone Creek to baptize him. Um, but he said, the snow was about three feet deep, but the water um, mixed with ice, he said, I didn't feel any cold. So that was an amazing moment because at the age of 26, he was joining a church that had barely over 3,000 converts that had existed for just three years. And it was led by a 28-year-old who had just declared to the world that he was a prophet of God, had received new scripture, and, and was receiving additional revelations. So the faith that it took um, to not only embrace that, but then uh, three months later to hear from Harley P. Pratt, he needed to join basically what we now call Zion's camp. Um, he, he did, he left everything and consecrated himself and everything he had to the work of the Lord and never looked back. That's a really beautiful story. I love like this, the strong conviction that we see of the saints at this time. Um, I think it's a really great example for all of us to look to. What do you think Woodruff's most notable or unique contributions are to Latter-day Saint tradition? And let's start with Professor Harper and then we'll go to Jennifer. I don't think there's any question about the most significant thing he did, and that is to um, develop the restoration of temple doctrine and ordinances. When Joseph Smith endowed nine men on May 4th, 1842, one of them was Brigham Young. And Brigham tells us that Joseph said, here's here's the whole thing kind of dumped it out and then said to Brigham Young this isn't organized right that's going to be your job you're going to have to figure this out well Brigham Young did that as best he could and in the last year of his life he dedicated the St. George Temple and made Wilfred Woodruff the president of it and then he dumped that same job onto Wilfred this isn't finished you're going to have to figure it out it's now your job Wilfred took up that responsibility. He's the one who, together with his associates there, wrote the temple ordinances uh, for the first time. And then uh, he led us through, through that work and uh, began the work of endowing and sealing the dead in mass and in a, on a scale that we'd never seen before. Before that, people didn't go to receive endowments for the dead. You could be baptized for the dead, but uh, it's really in St. George Temple under President Woodruff's direction that endowments and ceilings for the dead ramp up. And then uh, Wilfred oversaw the end of plural marriage and its replacement with genealogical ceilings, the way we do them today. And that was a process of revelation that he didn't necessarily anticipate and didn't necessarily welcome, at least at the beginning. Right, he, he took a defensive position as Latter Saints did in those days, but when it became clear to him that he was supposed to let plural marriage go and that instead he was supposed to guide the saints in sealing themselves to their ancestors genealogically, that's when that work started and really ramped up under his direction. And I would say those are the most significant of many uh, contributions that he made. Jennifer knows more about what I just told you than anybody on the planet. Yeah, we're really lucky to have her. Jennifer, what, what do you think the most significant or unique contributions are that Woodruff made for Latter-day Saint tradition? So I agree with Steve that his contributions to the development of Temple Doctrine are unparalleled. I think he's always been well known as an incredible missionary. His success in England um, in 1800 converts. In, in, in 1840, that was an incredible number compared to he had baptized one person in 1839. So that alone was miraculous. And, and I think part of it was his personal dedication. So his example in his fearlessness in, in taking the gospel to the world and his dedication to that. He spent 
10 of the first 15 years in the church on missions. But Steve also alluded to a process. And to me, that is what I take away from all of Wilfred Woodruff's writings is that it truly was a process that what was revealed to Joseph Smith was um, required going back to the Lord. So they would get a revelation, uh, a certain doctrine, and then they would go back to say, we understand that that there is universal salvation, that baptism for the dead is, is a part of the plan so that everyone has this opportunity. But then they had to go back and say exactly how do we do this? And, and then it was, you need to make sure you record them. That was important. And then you need to make sure that there are witnesses. And, and then it was uh, because all of this is part of the next step with the endowments and the ceilings. And as each thing was revealed, it, it required um, going back to the Lord. And that takes humility. That takes um, an understanding that it's a, a long process, a long-term commitment to what's happening. And for Wilfred Woodruff, the initial revelations just um, on the social kingdom, on the fact that his own brother who had been, or his, yes, his own brother who died before he received the gospel, his mother who died when he was a year and a half old, that they, they weren't lost, which is a problem that every religion on earth was, was trying to, to explain away because they couldn't solve that. So significant things. I think the other more significant thing almost than, than even temple doctrine or missionary work is the fact that he recorded it. Um, we wouldn't know these things if Wilford hadn't written them down. So his record is the critical piece. Many of us receive revelations. Many of us see miracles, experience healings or or spiritual, um, the whisperings, or even, even more significant signs and wonders, if you want to call them that, but we don't write them down. Or if we do, they're lost to history. And the miracle of Wilford's record is he not only kept it, but it was a daily record, and it shows the process. It shows the step-by-step -step understanding and commitment and humility and sacrifice and faith and respect. So. We know that he walked over 180,000 miles because he recorded every step. And we know that he set apart not only his only his 10 years as a missionary, but he set apart another 5,500 missionaries. And he wrote 6,198 pages in his journal. He gave 3,559 discourses and he wrote 13,308 letters. But in addition to that, he he participated in the ordination of 11,000 men to priesthood offices, and he helped build six temples and participated in dedicating five of them. And when he presided over the St. George Temple, he sealed over 11,000 couples and, and witnessed another, another 33,000 sealings. So it wasn't just a calling. It was an absolute consecration of his life. And the most important part of that was to accomplish what the Lord would have us do. And if the church and revelation um, had ended when Joseph Smith was killed in 1844, the church wouldn't look the same. If um, revelation had ceased when Brigham Young died in 1877, we wouldn't recognize some of the, the ordinances that we do today. And it was Wilford Woodruff who not only outlived those, uh, his contemporaries, but did it um, in a way to carry forward what they had started. And to me, that is the impact of not only what he did, but what he recorded and how we understand Joseph's words and Brigham's commitment um, is through the lens of Wilford Woodruff's records. Yeah, and the records are definitely really important, and I think focusing on bringing those to light is a really good effort. Um, so this leads me to my next question, Jennifer. How did the Wilford Woodruff Papers Project start, and why is it happening now? Well, <laughs> um, it's happening now because 
this is the time. Um, the Joseph Smith papers set the standard and set the foundation for the history of the church. And, and because Joseph Smith's life ended in 1844, um, Wilfred Woodruff's record not only starts in 1830 when he joined the church and, and started recording um, in 1833, the development of the restoration, but that he carried it through to 1898. So to, to tell the story of the development of temple doctrine or to explain the, if I, could, if I knew how to turn my phone off, I would It's totally fine, I can edit it out. So if, um, so to tell the story of Of the entire 19th century of church history, the, the restoration, the priesthood, the temple doctrine, the, the scriptural development, all those things, it requires someone who was there, not reflecting on the last 60 years, had a good life, served some missions, loved my family, but every single day. So my mother told me the story of Wilfred Woodruff's experience with the founding fathers in the St. George Temple. And she said it would really be great if someone researched the women. There was um, 100 eminent men and 70 women on the list that Wilfred Woodruff wrote down. So my mom's focus was the women because this, the men are the founding fathers and, and well-known people in history. So I started reading the the stories of the women, but also their their works. There were authors um, like Charlotte Bronte, and there were poets um, like Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and there were controversial political figures like um, Marie Antoinette. So it was interesting to me to read about these women, but at some point I asked the question, you know, why Wilford Woodruff? <laughs> you know, if these were the eminent women that that he wrote down, um, why would the eminent men have appeared to him and why did he include these people? So instead of reading what other people had written about his experience, I started reading his writings. And I, I had to use the interlibrary loan to, to get the copies of his journals, but I read them all. And then I started reading his discourses because I wanted to know what he said about that experience and how he shared that experience. And so then I started researching to find more discourses. And then I, I wanted to read his letters from that time period. So I started collecting those. And over the course of about 15 years, um, I collected about 27,000 documents. And when I, was, when I was reading these things, I was just doing it out of curiosity. And I started writing down kind of a timeline of his life in the context of church history and US history. And then um, at some point in that, my husband said, why don't you share what you're learning? Because I think he was tired of me telling him all the stories. <laughs> um, and he uh, encouraged me to apply to speak at the Mormon History Association. So I did that in 2011 and and in the audience were two of Wilford Woodruff's great-grandsons. And they um, said, if you want to write more about this, we would love to help you. And um, so Lambert and Bruce Woodruff um, agreed to read drafts of, of my book. And it's called Wilford Woodruff's Witness because it is his words and his experience is not my perspective on his experiences or my interpretation because it truly is his story and um when i published that it took three years um then it to me i knew i i, I didn't have the money to to market it or to give it away for free so i made a website to put everything that i could up on to, to share what I could. And then I started to give presentations on firesides. And 
and more people wanted more information, but I didn't have the expertise or the time um, that it would take to transcribe everything. I started to transcribe letters and and um, and discourses, but I knew that it needed real historians and um, people with training like Steve Harper and not me. <laughs> so I I was asked to speak at, at various places and, and the question at the end was always what's next? Are you gonna write another book or um, you know, what are you gonna do? And it was last August uh, 2019 that I presented a fireside in, in Spanish Fork and Don Perry was in the audience and said the same question at the end, what's next? And I said, if I had my dream, it would be the Wilfred Woodruff papers. And I met with him the next morning and he said, let's do this. So we co-founded the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Foundation. And the first person that we met with was Steve Harper, because if anybody could do this and know how to do it, it was him. But the mirac miraculous development from there was with the support of the church history department and the Wilfred Woodruff Family Association and um, incredibly talented people that I had met along the way um, if I could give you the timeline and the names of the people that had helped me in my research or um, even so somebody's daughter who'd helped me and then her father is now working with the foundation or um, a friend of a friend. So the talent and the, the money and the time that it takes to do something like this is just mind boggling. But in spite of the coronavirus, um, it's happening. And just to give you one date, we we met with the church history department and Steve on February 26th or 7th. The Wilfred Woodruff family gathering uh, was that Sunday, March 1st, Wilfred Woodruff's birthday. And that's when we made the announcement. And I flew home the next day and, and haven't left the house since because of coronavirus. So had that not happened in those three days, um, we wouldn't have a foundation. <laughs> but since then, people have stepped forward with the funding um, to get us started. And uh, with the abilities, the talents, the skills um, to make it happen, because it's not just transcription. There's a whole process that only Steve can explain that um, to, to take it from the documents through the process of making them available online uh, for everyone for free. So, your story is really beautiful, Jennifer. I really just admire so much how you just dove right in, and then this amazing, amazing foundation started because of your curiosity. Don't sell yourself short. You are doing amazing things, and I really respect you a lot, and I'm grateful for you. Um, Professor Harper, your stated mission is to collect digitally preserve, transcribe, and publish Wilfred Woodruff papers. How do you collect these documents and how will you publish them? Good question. Um, much of the collection work has already been done before us. Uh, Wilfred's descendants have uh, saved and cherished his papers largely, and many of them have made their way from family into possession of the church history department and they are the best people in the world at collecting, preserving these kinds of records. Uh, they've made lots of the images available on their website. And so that's our main repository where we get access to the documents from. There are other places too, where they're sort of scattered around. There are thousands and thousands of letters. Some of them are in Provo, some of them are at the U in Salt Lake. Um, scattered around. And of course, there are probably uh, many, many letters out there that we don't know about yet that are still scattered. Jennifer knows exactly how many Wilfred said he wrote and received in his journal, but we only have a, a relatively small chunk of that total number. We assume that many of them are not extant anymore, but we uh, also assume that there are still documents out there that we don't know about yet and still haven't collected. So we're eager to uh, cooperate with anybody who knows anything about where they are and find them that way. Once we know where a document is and we get access to it, then we put it into um, 
our text editor. This is just software that we use to do the transcription process and make sure that it's as close as possible to the original writing. We put it through a second level verification process. This is just standard for documentary editing. And eventually it'll go through a third level verification. But in the meantime, we're eager to get these documents onto the web. So right now we are working on a very impressive content management system or a website, you might call it, but it's more than just a website. It's a massive uh, and impressive system that will handle these thousands of documents. Wilfred's corpus of writings is massive compared to Joseph Smith's. Right, so josephsmithpapers.org is, is state-of-the-art website for this kind of a project. And we know that we probably can't do one that's as, um, as expensive, for one thing, and maybe as capable as josephsmithpapers.org. But we are really proud of what a talented team of people have put together. And it's going to be impressive. And it's going to be a lot less expensive, but it's going to be nearly as capable as josephsmithpapers.org. It's going to be free, open access. And over the next decade, every Wilfred Woodruff paper that we can get our hands on will be on that website for free. That is awesome. I'm looking forward to that. I have a question really fast, though. Regarding the editorial method that you use, when you're transcribing documents like this, often you'll see spelling errors or spelling variations or grammatical errors. Do you decide to keep those in or do you change them? Document editors are not like copy editors. Um, copy editors try to fix other people's mistakes. That's fine, that's what they're there for. I'm thankful for copy editors. They've saved me a lot of trouble. But document editors like us try to mediate between um, a person alive today and a person from the past, like Wilfred Woodruff. And we try to do that in the same way that a museum curator might mediate between past and present. In other words, we want to present the artifacts that we have, in this case, Wilfred Woodruff's writings, and we want to make them meaningful and useful to people in the present, but we want to not wreck Wilfred in the process. We don't want to mediate any more than necessary. We don't want to change who he was. We don't want to give readers today the wrong impression. So we keep, we work really hard to keep Wilfred's unique and creative spelling and writing and, and so forth. Now, he presents probably the biggest challenge to doing that from anybody I've ever worked on in this regard, because Wilfred has his own rules for writing. Um, he has a middle case, right? We have uppercase letters and lowercase letters, but Wilfred has a middle case. And trying to figure out what rules he uses to decide when to use the middle case is mind boggling to me. So we're going to do our very, very best to preserve him and we're going to not entirely succeed. We just don't we, don't, we don't have any middle case letters on our keyboard. So what we're doing is making sure that the website includes images of Wilfred's documents. And um, in that way, even though the transcription, right, the typed copy of his letters or journal entries will have some limitations in representing exactly how Wilfred wrote. Uh, a reader can quite easily refer to the actual document, even put them side by side on their screen and compare. So we're gonna try to uh, keep Wilfred as close to his pristine condition as possible and make his documents uh, as searchable and as accessible as possible for users today. That's wonderful. I'm really looking forward to seeing more of them. Jennifer, could you please talk about what the actual content of these documents is? So we've mentioned that they're letters and discourses, um, but what did Wilfred Woodruff write about? Fish. What did you say, Steve? Fish. 
<laughs> yes. Um, Wilford Woodruff was, I don't know, a Renaissance man, if you want to say that. He was into everything. And he was an outdoorsman. He was a horticulturist. He was a philosopher. Um, he was a scriptorian. He was also a family man. And I mean, that's why he wrote 13,308 letters. He, he traveled so much in his missionary work and then kept in touch with his family, his extended family, Phoebe's family. Um, he had businesses and um, his wives lived in different cities uh, and he was you know, always traveling with um, his responsibilities as an apostle and temple president. And so he wrote down again, everything, whether it was the price of apples, he had 70 species of apples that he grew in his own orchard, whether it was his um, books from his, you know, he would order seeds from around the world, but it was also his, his uh, wisdom to his children, his advice to his younger children, his married children, um, his writings to his son on his mission. And it was also official church correspondence and the difficult decisions that had to be made and the, the principles that those decisions were based on. So the, the letters themselves are enlightening. Uh, one of my favorite is the letter received from his wife ex explaining the new doctrine of baptism for the dead that she just heard Joseph Smith teach in in conference and she just put that in the middle of 10 page letter to him that month and his discourses are um, also revealing his journal is more of an official record he begins it by saying this is a period in world history that has never been known before and we need to record every instance of god's uh, hand in our lives and that's why he recorded every ordinance, every confirmation, every baptism, every blessing, every healing, every mob that attacked him, every um, mile that he traveled. And so the letters are more personal and the discourses include, um, he, he would track each year, his annual summary in his journal. So the discourses that he recorded were 3,559. And we have only found 995 of them because uh, some were not, you know, published in the conference report. They may have been funeral eulogies or um, a meeting in someone's home or uh, just a traveling while on his mission in a courthouse or in the middle of the park in London. So what he considered a speech or a discourse um, was not necessarily um, a formal meeting. but those are passionate and um, pointed, and we know exactly how long they were because he wrote down, spoke 14 minutes, Brigham spoke 40, Willard Richard spoke 20. Um, so those are things that, that we have the breadcrumbs to follow, to find, and I would like to find everyone, of course. But what we do have um, has never been transcribed and published before. So that's the, the contribution of the Wilfred Woodruff papers. The journals have been transcribed and were published in the 80s and were just republished. But you have to pay to buy the book and you can't search the book and um, you can't look up your ancestor or um, a date in, in church history that, that leads to more information. And that's the basis of what's in the documents that we hope will lead to better scholarship and better understanding of, of history and a better appreciation for what it took to restore the gospel and and keep it from being destroyed. That's really uh, Professor Hunter, as these documents were often not published beforehand, have they been cited widely or not not at all really? Uh, they have been cited, but not widely. So not widely. Um, Wilfred's journals are, are known to church history experts. You can't claim to be an expert in early or in 19th century church history if you don't know 
Wilfred Woodruff's journals, they're a backbone. They comprise almost 20% actually of Joseph Smith's documentary history, so or manuscript history. Uh, in other words, as an assistant church historian himself uh, in the 19th century, Wilfred and his associates drew on his records to flesh out Joseph Smith's own uh, manuscript history. So his records have been cited from beginning then and, and ever since, but it's not the case that generally speaking, they're well known, right? Um, most Latter-day Saints might know the name Wilfred Woodruff, but it's not common for them to know about his record keeping and his documents and his contributions. Um, so we're interested in making the records available to everyone everyone, uh, not just the experts who might have the ability to get that $700 bound set. Uh, we want them available at people's fingertips, searchable, uh, so they could find in an instant that letter about baptism for the dead and use it for a lesson for their youth group or whatever the case might be. That's awesome. I, I'm a big fan of open access. Yeah, Jennifer, do you have something to add? So, um, for example, with he he wrote over thirteen thousand letters and received over seventeen thousand. So it's also the fact that there's a conversation. It's not just his version of of the story, but it's it's the understanding back and forth. It's within those letters, another apostle's wife may have written a note, or Wilfred might have written something on Brigham Young's letter home. So. It includes all of those things. And, and when you add it up, less than 1% of his letters have been transcribed. And partly because uh, we haven't found them all, we have about 6,500 that are digitized. And we're not trying to physically collect. We're just trying to digitally preserve. So when someone says, I have a letter, it will be scanned and then transcribed, not we'd like to take it and try to store it and keep it. That's that's not what the foundation is about, but to make it accessible and most of all to preserve it. So to take what we have um, and to transcribe it will take years, but that doesn't mean we're gonna stop looking for the rest of them. That's really wonderful. Um, so both Jennifer and Professor Harper, what has been your favorite discovery while working on this project so far? Well, what I love most, frankly, is something that is sort of between the lines. I love the love story between Wilfred and Phoebe Carter. Um, and there, there aren't any, well, you see it in odd ways, maybe unexpected ways. Wilfred liked to make designs in his journal, uh, little sketches, little figures, um, text boxes with initials in them. And um, some of them you can understand, some of them you can't. And then he also liked to write about Phoebe. Whenever he saw her, uh, whenever they um, crossed, when they first met, right? There's a kind of delight in what he writes about her that is my favorite thing in the journals. Um, and he's often, as Jennifer said, on missions, right? The first decade of their married life, he spends more time away from her than with her. He's on missions. And it's, it's wonderful to him anytime he can cross her path or receive a letter from her or even have the prospect of getting back together with her sometime in the foreseeable future. It brings him a kind of joy and delight that's really precious to me. I love seeing that. And the best and most elaborate design he ever makes in his journal is in the, on the day when he and Phoebe have this sort of awful day, freezing, freezing cold outside. They try to warm their house by making a fire and all that does is fill the house with smoke. And they, that makes them so sick, they have to go back to bed. And their daughter then falls out of a chair and smashes her face and is bleeding. And they don't, they don't feel well, even that night when they go to a meeting, this very special meeting. 
And it's at this meeting that they receive the highest and holiest ordinances of the restored gospel. And Wilfred writes all the journal, and then he makes this elaborate, really beautiful design about how important that that whole day and those experiences are to him. In other words, the most important thing in my life is being sealed to the people that I love most. And the most important thing in Wilfred's life is the restored gospel that promises him those blessings, that seals him to the people he loves most. Death disrupted Wilfred's life from the time he was an infant. And death disrupts our lives. And the, the answer to that, the antidote, is the Savior and the sealing power of his holy priesthood. And nothing was more important to Wilfred than that. And he would cross the earth to tell people that. And uh, it's because it was the most important thing in his life. And that's what I love most about his, his journals and letters, documents. That's really wonderful. I, I also really like when you see President Nelson look at Wendy Nelson with that much love and admiration. And that to me is kind of a similar phenomenon, seeing how much our prophets and apostles value the sealing ordinance has always been something that stood out to me. Jennifer, what is your personal favorite discovery that you've had so far? You've read a lot, so you have a lot to pull from. I think for me, I mean, I, I felt like I was a good student of church history before I met Wilfred Woodruff, so to speak. But to understand him as a human, not as a prophet. I mean, you can look at the pictures of these men. They're old. They have big beards and white hair and, and they look like, you know, some unreachable personality. And we can, we can get to know President Nelson or in my life, President Hinckley or President Kimball. And we can see them as human beings and um, understand that in some way, it's comforting to know that imperfect people can do God's work. And for me, that's what Wilfred Woodruff's story is all about, is this unusual, um, down-to-earth, hardworking man changed the world and changed the history of the church and, and did it with a sense of humor. <laughs> and that's what comes through in his writings. Um, simple things like he was building his house in Nauvoo and he worked hard. Everything he did, he just would say, you know, I exhausted myself or he would do something the next day, just be so sore and tired. But when he was building his house in Nauvoo, which incidentally, he only got to live in for six, six weeks. But he said in those days, you hand killed your bricks. And he said, I flung 7,000 bricks today. I nearly melted myself. And it's just funny to me that he can say things like that, like Steve said, in the midst of what would the rest of us would just, we'd just call it a day. Just, you know, it's too hard. And he had a relationship like that with Bibi where they could, they could laugh about things that were truly disheartening. And with Brigham Young, Brigham Young teased him about the fact that he wrote everything down. And they'd be in meetings and somebody would make a smart aleck remark and he'd say, Wilford, did you get that? We want to check back later. And, and just that he was real. And I think sometimes we study church history as if, you know, we're looking back at Moses or Noah or even Adam, just so removed. And it's not. They're real people. And again, it gives me hope that the rest of us can accomplish God's will if these imperfect yet completely consecrated individuals were willing to do what it took to accomplish what God had asked them to do and to rely on that with complete faith. And Wilfred Woodruff to me is, is that example. I love what you said about meeting him. And I, I do think that reading the words of our ancestors has this ability for us to feel like we, we know them on a personal level. And that to me is one of the beautiful things about church history is it's really turning your heart back to your fathers and whether they are your literal fathers or your fathers by virtue of being adopted into the house of Israel um, through covenants. And I think that that's just one of the most beautiful things that you said. Um, Jennifer, could you tell me a little bit about what work remains to be done? Well, as Steve mentioned, uh, this project is just 
coming up to one year and we have another 10 to go. So our plan and, and our milestones will be each year on Wilfredo's birthday to publish another set of documents. This year will be the first 20% of his journals, the first 20% of the transcribed letters and the first autobiography. So he wrote about seven uh, different, you could call them autobiographies, but um, retelling of his story. And we have those to transcribe doing one each year. And then with the journals, we'll finish those in five years with 20% each year. Um, the letters, we have the 6,500 approximately that, that are ready to go and hope that we'll find more in the meantime. But those will also be going forward. Then there will be symposia um, to every two years to review what's been published and to, again, share it in a more comprehensive way with not just scholars, but um, members of the church and, and other people interested in the history. And all of that is um, going to be an intense effort, not just a couple days a year, but every day of the year. <laughs> so we have a great deal to do. And even if we run out of money after five years, it will still be an incredible contribution to the total documentation of the restoration and to share even that much of his testimony will be fantastic. But our hope is that we will continue to get the support that we need with volunteers and with the financial resources that we need to go forward. We're doing it all virtually. We don't have an office. We don't have any overhead. Everybody's working on their own computers to um, transcribe and verify. And it's an incredible technological experiment <laughs> to pull this off without, um, I mean, there's more than 50 people involved and I've met six of them. So it's um, come together in a way that um, makes me believe even more strongly in First Nephi 3.7. When the Lord wants us to accomplish something, he'll provide a way. And so far, um, he has not disappointed. That's really wonderful. Professor Harper, how do you expect this to impact Latter-day Saint scholarship? Well, when we worked on the Joseph Smith papers, we used to say that this project will make it so that no one can ever do responsible scholarship on Joseph Smith again without actually knowing the documents. And that's true for Wilfred Woodruff. And it's true for a lot more than just Wilfred. Wilfred, um, Wilfred's not just documenting his own life, as Jennifer said, he documents the whole history of the church in a, in a way that no one else ever has. Right? He's, he's the best record keeper we've ever had. So anybody who tries to do any kind of scholarship on 19th century church history will have to know Wilfred's documents. They'll have to be better informed. And that includes myself. We'll, we'll be better informed. We'll do better historical work, more responsible, more accurate historical work, because these papers will be easy to access. And we'll have no excuse for not doing it well. That's awesome. I'm really happy to see that kind of shift things, because I do think when we have more primary documents to use, oftentimes, we have more positive perspectives on the people whom we describe. Um, Jennifer, where can we find this project on social media and what needs currently exist? How could someone get involved and help you guys out? It is, our website is wilfordwoodroofpapers.org. And that is where all of the documents will be accessible. And already there is information on his wives, his children, the timeline of his life in church history and U.S. history. And you can go to that website and contact us. It's contact at wilfordwoodruffpapers.org and support at wilfordwoodruffpapers.org. So the two things that we need are the funding to... Um, work with the documents, which means paying people by the hour to reword in teams of two, so that one is checking the original and one is checking the transcript. 
And the other is to volunteer so that we don't need to pay people to do that. <laughs> so um, those are the best ways to support the project. And we have social media right now is limited, but we have um, videos and podcasts that kind of tell the background. And then we will continue to do more to highlight the different aspects of the papers as we go forward. So we'll have um, presentation, the videos that introduce parts and show the documents themselves and the process that we're going through. Um, as well as just discussions with the various scholars involved. Awesome. I'll be sure to put everything in the description of this podcast and also direct people to come help you out. And I, I hope you get some volunteers to help transcribe things. And thank you both for coming on today. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you very much.